0: I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. As we're going through our series on evidence for the Bible, we're going to be hitting sort of a new stride. We've been talking about prophecy and how prophecy proves that the Bible has information from beyond the mind of man. This is absolutely amazing. It's singular in the Bible. But right now we're going to move specifically to prophecy about Jesus. Up till now I've talked about like Ezekiel's prophecy as an entire or Alexander the Great, or Antiochus, Epiphanes, the various historical figures and places. But right now, we're going to just spend a few weeks focusing on Jesus, because there are so many prophecies about Jesus, it's hard to just pick one and say that was it. Uh, So we're going to take them as a clump, um, and we'll deal with them. Well, we'll take our time doing this, but first I want to respond to something that I've heard before. In fact, I've heard frequently, and maybe you've heard too. um, It's this concept that you can't, Use the Bible to prove the Bible. I don't know if you've heard that before, if you've been out witnessing a lot, especially with skeptics or atheists. This just comes up a lot. You can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. Yet that's kind of what I'm doing, right? Because I'm showing you prophecy. So i want to respond to it real quick. There's a tiny bit of truth in that. I mean, I can't just say, and I don't think this is rational, to say the Bible says it's the word of God, therefore it's the word of God. That's not enough. Uh, because the Book of Mormon says it's the word of God, and I don't think it's the word of God. Um, the Holy Great Price that says it's the word. The, you know, there's other. You know, the Quran says it's the word of God from the Prophet Muhammad. I don't believe that. So we need more than just to say the Bible says so, and therefore it's true. First, we have to establish why we should believe the Bible. Then we can take that step and go. Now that now that we know we believe the Bible, now the Bible saying it is enough. It's enough to go. Ah, the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. That's my position. But how do I justify that to a skeptic? So I don't want to have an overgeneralization by saying you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible because that's like saying you can't use a $100 bill to prove that it's a genuine $100 bill. But that's how you prove it, right? Like if I I had a $100 bill, (laughs) I'd pull it out of my wallet right now and show you that there's all these special features in a $100 bill. There's a whole bunch of special features from the the paper, which is actually like a type of cloth that it's made out of, to there's certain parts of the ink that never dries on your hundred dollar bill it never quite dries you can rub it and it'll actually blur and that's one of the ways to test it you can you can touch the ribs on the jacket of the portrait of the president and you can actually scrape your thumb and, and feel a on the ribs and it's because they they do that as a, one of the ways to check it there's the threads that are in, in it as well there's a there's a you know the little different colored threads then you've got just the look and then the feel it just feels a certain way you just kind of know like that's hey this doesn't feel like money and then you've got the color. That particular color green can only be used on American currency. That's it. We don't use it on anything else. If someone else tries to use it, then that's considered illegal. And then we've got um, a little strip nowadays inside that actually has a little cloth strip inside, and if you hold it up to the light, you can see it where it'll it'll have printed on that cloth strip $100 to tell you the denomination of, of that bill. All these checks. And there's even... Another one that I just found out about as I was studying, because I just I geek out on these things, right? That there's, around the portrait, there's what looks like a little blurry black line. But if you put a magnifying glass up to it, you'll see that it's actually micro letters that say United States of America. in just tiny little micro printing. I've never noticed it before, because I don't have magnifying glasses. These are just normal glasses. But yes, in other words, you prove a $100 bill by running it through a series of tests. So you have to use a hundred dollar bill to prove a hundred dollar bill it's unavoidable (laughs) so you have to use the bible to prove the bible you got to run it through tests and that's what prophecy is Um, so what makes sense is seeing if anything in the book that we're in the bible speaks of divine origin and pretty much everything we've seen so far says oh yeah oh yeah divine origin oh yeah god's book oh yeah this is from the lord there's all the, the threads and the ribbed, and there's a little micro printing. I mean, it's got everything in there to show us that it's God's Word. So, we're going to continue that series. Um, now, this will be a little bit limited. There are tons of great ways as we go through Jesus now, talking about Jesus in the Old Testament. There's a lot of great ways to see Jesus in the Old Testament. I actually did a series on this, uh, like, I don't know, a year ago or so, maybe two years ago. And we just talked about Jesus in the Old Testament. This won't be the same as that, because I'm not going to talk about every way we see Jesus in the, in the Bible but rather um, the more sort of prophetic, foreshadowing ways we see Jesus that I think help make our case that he is the Messiah of the Old Testament. So it's going to be a little bit more limited in scope. I'm going to focus on a few Messianic prophecies that I think are most useful, in my opinion, for what we're doing here today. And it helps us because now we don't have to survey hundreds of years of history, of unknown history with names and figures you've never heard of. Now we're talking about Jesus. And you know Jesus' story. In fact, Jesus' life is like well-established facts of history. He's he's one of the most well-known ancient figures of history. This, this anonymous guy doesn't come from any special place, shows up, starts preaching, changes the world. And we have tons of evidence to, to tell us about his life. So, from the birth of Christianity, from the very beginning, Christians went around saying that Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. And we'll be looking at some of those. From the very beginning, this has been the this has been like the, the, the drumming of Christianity throughout the centuries. Yep, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. He fulfilled the Bible. It's so in our faces that we sometimes miss the glory of this, the importance of it. In fact, Jesus was the first one to say so. He was the first one to say, I'm fulfilling the Bible. I'm fulfilling the Old Testament. Let me read to you, Luke 24, verse 44, he says this. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of, the, of Moses the prophets, and the Psalms. So he thought that there were writings about him in the law, that's the first five books of Moses, the prophets covering most of the Bible there, and then the Psalms, speaking of the, the poetry sections of Scripture. So he sees the entire Old Testament as referring to him. That's pretty neat. I mean, and that, that comes from our the founder of our beliefs, Jesus Christ, right? Also in John five forty six, he said to the Pharisees, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote, about me. If you believe Moses, you believe me because he wrote about me. I think that's very interesting. Um, Moses wrote about Jesus and Jesus himself declares it. So this is not like a fabricated new Christian tactic. This is what it's always been about. what it's always been about. Now I want to show you one that I think is really interesting. Um, It's not typical prophecy per se, but it's too interesting to skip. So I'm going to start with it, not because I think it's my best case for Jesus, but because I just think it's neat. And it's just fun to start with this. It's just really neat, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I just can't ignore it. It's too interesting. So it's actually in Genesis 5, and you're welcome to open your Bible to Genesis 5 to kind of look over that. It is the first boring passage of the Bible. Genesis 5 is the first genealogy of the Bible. And in Genesis 5, we have a record of Adam, and, his, and he begat, and then his son Seth, and then he begat, and he begat, and he begat. And we have all these names, all these various names. And I can uh, list them for you up here on the, uh, on the screen. <clears throat> so we have Adam, and he had a son named Seth, then Enosh, Canaan, or Canaan, Mahalalel, try saying that five times fast, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Now these are the, the sons, all, these are the, the 10 names in this particular genealogy, and that's it. That's, that's all of the, the males mentioned in this family line moving down, Because it just takes us basically, Adam to Noah, and the next chapter of the Bible picks up with Noah's story, and the flood, and all that. Now, these names have meanings, and it's possible, through some research, to find out what the names mean. They're not all uncontroversial. I'll get back to that later. But here's the meaning of these names. Adam, you probably know this one. Anybody know? Adam means means man. Adam was the man. He was the first man. He, in fact... There are some translations. In, if you compare them, Genesis, where we read about Adam, it will sometimes translate his name as Adam, and another translation will translate it as man, because they're just trying to figure out which one was meant there—the name proper, or, or perhaps, the word man. He had a son named Seth, and Seth means appointed. Seth means appointed. This is Genesis 4:25 assures us of this. There's no debate on Seth—at least, no reasonable debate. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. And then she says this, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. So she sees, says, Oh, God's appointed me another son, names her son Seth, means appointed. Enosh means mortal, mortal. It's from the root anash, Enosh, anash. It's um, to be incurable, it's used of wounds, grief, woe, sickness, or wickedness, even. But it's from a root word. Now, the reason why names are a little tricky to figure out is because if you look at an old text and you see a word, you can look at the words around it to figure out what that word means. You know, like if I said, I'm going to bloop bloop off the bleachers, then you could guess what bloop bloop means. Maybe bloop bloop means jump, fall. You know, it means something along those lines probably. But if, I'm, if I have a name in an ancient text, there's no context to tell you what that name means. So what you do is you look for root words and that sort of thing. It's it's a whole different kind of study looking for the meaning of names. But that root word probably a notch. Then you've got uh, Kinnan. His name means sorrow. And the root word there is Kinnah. Kinnan, kinah, And it's from the same, same root as the word meaning elegy or a dirge. A dirge is a fancy word for a, a funeral song. A sad type of funeral song. That's what a dirge is. Um, in fact... Um, It also means to lament. And so you've got the kinnan, meaning sorrow or sadness, that sort of thing. Mahalalel means the blessed God, the blessed God. Mahalal is blessed or praise. And then el, the el at the end of the name, is a shortened version of Elohim or God. This is very common in Hebrew names. In fact, it might be common in some of our names. An E-L at the end of a name usually means God. For instance, um, Daniel, Daniel, right? Daniel means God is my judge. Michael, that's my name. It means who is like God, right? Mikael, that means who is like God. Nathaniel, it means gift of, you guessed it, God. So there's the L at the end there. So Mahalalel is blessed God or the blessed God, the praised God. That's the idea. Then you have Jared, which means shall come down. And this comes from the root Yarad, which means shall come down. That's pretty much what it means. Jared means shall come down. This is not, this one's not particularly debated. And then you've got Enoch, which means teaching. Or it could also mean dedicated um, or even disciple could mean that. So it has something to do with like teaching and and, and committing to a cause, like a discipling-type thing. Some say dedicated. Um, in fact, there are Jews who make a lot of, there's a lot of Jewish, in, not in Christian circles, but in especially older Jewish circles, saying, what's, what's up with Enoch? There's a lot of curiosity about Enoch. And there's the groups of them that think he was the first teacher, and he maybe he invented writing because the root of his name related to teaching. So that's the idea. Um, I don't think he invented writing. I think God probably just gave it to man when he created him. Good luck inventing writing, but but yes. So then you have Methuselah. Methuselah is really interesting. His name means his death shall bring. His death shall bring. Now uh, the year that Methuselah died, interestingly enough, is the same year. If you follow the chronologies, it's the same year the flood happened in the Bible. So the year Methuselah dies is the year the flood happens. And in the genealogies, we don't we don't follow anybody else t- to that year. It's not as though we have a whole list of people that die on that year. It's just Methuselah who we're, we're bothering to find out about, his death shall bring, almost as though it was somehow foreboding of the coming flood. Interestingly also is that Methuselah is the longest lived person recorded in the Bible. And so there's a sense of God's mercy and grace, as though, as though when Methuselah dies, that's when the flood's going to happen. And then he just lives and he keeps living and he keeps living, as though God's just, God's just God delays judgment, but he stretches out mercy. You know what I mean? He He pushes off judgment. He's slow- to judge, but he's quick to forgive. And it's a beautiful, beautiful quality that we want to emulate <laughs> from our Lord. So his death shall bring. Now there are some debates about some of these names. Um, for instance, Methuselah is debated. Some people think it means um, uh, like a man with an arrow or a man of an arrow. And so they're taking the name and splitting it into two things. Uh, the first part, muth or Methu, and then Salah. Actually, it's correctly pronounced Salach, you gotta, there's, that's a Hebrew thing, right? So you gotta, I don't know if you can do that or not, but that's, that's part of how it goes. Well, Salach or Shalach, this, it means to bring or to send forth. And some people will, they'll fight against his name, meaning his death shall bring by saying, oh no, it means arrow. So arrow is a derivative of that. It's not the actual root, but it's a derivative of it. Because what do you do with an arrow or a spear? He's send it forth. And so then that's where it, that's why you call that an arrow, because it's flying at you, or it's flying forth. Either it's coming at you, or it's going away. It's bringing, or it's going out. So, the, uh, the but the word muth is used 125 times in the Old Testament, and it means death. That's the beginning of his name. So his death shall bring. Death shall bring. Then you have lamech, which is connected to our word today, lament, which is a sorrow or a despairing thing, the despairing or a despaired person, someone in sorrow. And then Noah finally um, means rest or comfort. You get this even right out of the Bible, Genesis 5.29, it says, And he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. So he's going to do what? Comfort us. And Noah means comfort. So it's a, it's a nice name. It's a nice name. Now, what you do is if you just read through these, man appointed mortal sorrow, the blessed God shall come down, teaching his death shall bring the despairing rest. What? The fact that this makes sense at all is just, I mean, defies the odds. But this doesn't just make sense. This this is, this is is a message of Christ. I mean, this is the gospel message. That man he eat of the tree and he's appointed to this the sorrow, the mortal sorrow. You you will die in the day you eat of it, and sorrow and pain and death result. But what? God, who is blessed, he comes down, he descends, and he teaches or disciples. What? And then his death shall bring the despairing, that's us, our mortal us in mortal sorrow, it'll bring us rest or comfort. And entering into salvation is like entering into the rest of the Lord, the peace of the Lord. So a Jewish mind especially, that's significant. This ultimate Sabbath that we enter into in Christ. So let me put this together to you in just a sentence form with a couple words put in like you would do if you were trying to translate a sentence like this. Man is a point of mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. Now, it is. this is just too interesting for me to ignore. Um, I don't like messing around with things that are uncertain. I don't quite call this uncertain. I think it's pretty neat. And I have tried to double and triple check the name, the meanings of the names and look at them in different sources. And not, like I said, not everybody agrees. Um, but what we do have is certain names that seem like they could mean this or that. Well, a legit, the this or that, one of the legitimate meanings are the meanings we have right here in front of us. Um, like Adam could mean ready or red it could also mean white or black ironic that that adam which means man could mean white black or red you take those colors and mix them up and you've got all of humanity (laughs) but the typical meaning of adam is man that would be the typical meaning that would be the normal meaning and so there's other meanings that could be there but i just think this is amazing i just thought you guys would enjoy it Um, but what we're going to do right now is we're going to look at uh, psalm 22 so um, so there's sort of a two, two-parter here. <laughs> that was the first part, just for fun. And then Psalm 22, if we have enough time to get through it, I hope. Let me give you guys some facts about the, Psalm 22. This psalm is, uh, pro, I believe, prophetic of Jesus. I wouldn't say it's exactly typical prophecy, but I'll get to that in a moment. <clears throat> it's definitely prophetic, though, as you read into the passage, especially the end of the passage. So, here's some facts about Psalm 22. It was written by a guy named David, King David, King of Israel. It was written in about the 10th century BC. So, we're talking a thousand years before Christ was born, this was penned. It is in Jewish thought, there are many traditional Jewish commentators that actually say this psalm is prophetic not Christians, they're not followers of Jesus, they're they're Jewish commentators, but they think that this passage, Psalm 22, that it speaks of future events. There are also very well-respected rabbis, including a midrash from one of the most well-respected rabbis from, excuse me, 1,200 years ago, that said that David described the Messiah's suffering in Psalm 22. Why is that important? Because I just want to show that this isn't the Christian just hijacking the scripture of the Jew and saying, that's ours. But rather, as you read it, you're like, man, that's Jesus. Like, this is about Jesus. And we even have good reasons from Jewish sources to say that we should be looking for the Messiah here. So we'll be looking at it. Now, there's other Jewish interpretations. But the reality is that the Christian interpretation makes more sense. The other Jewish interpretations what they do is they take the verses and they sort of piecemeal them out. This verse is about that person from history, this person is about this verse is about the other person from history, and they sort of pick apart the scripture so it's no longer cohesive, but the Christian view makes it a cohesive thing. It all applies to Jesus. <coughs> And as we read through it, Psalm 22, you'll realize that only hyperbole or really exaggeration strongly could really apply it to David because we know of no event in King David's life that fits with the things we're reading here. So, Psalm 22. Do you know the first person to quote this passage as applying to Jesus was Jesus? When Jesus was on the cross In Matthew 27, verse 46, we read about it. He's on the cross. It's the ninth hour, approximately. He is dying. He is about to die. And he cries out with a loud voice. He yells out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And this is translated for us. It says, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this grabs the heart of Christians because they're like, oh, whoa, wait a minute. I thought Jesus was going there for a good cause, but now he's saying he's forsaken. And what's going on? Well, let me tell you. Jesus usually called God Father. That's what he usually said. He said, my Father, Father this, Father that. He prayed, say Father. But here he says, my God, my God. Like there's a sense of distance there. And then he says, why have you forsaken me? Well, in Jewish thought, there was a way of teaching people because they didn't have a Psalm 22. They just had a Psalm. They didn't have them numbered the way we do now. So how would they remember? How would, how would you know I was referencing Psalm 22? Well, what I would do is I would learn Psalm 22, You would learn Psalm 22. You'd memorize the whole thing. You'd quote it over and over. And then when I wanted to bring it back to your memory, I'd use association and I would just quote the first part. I'd say, you know, in the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me passage? And you go, and association would bring that back to your mind. Just like the way we do with songs nowadays. Just like the way we do with songs. You know, I love you. You love me. We're a, and you got the whole song in your head now, you know, (laughs) sorry for that. So this Psalm 22 passage was quoted by Jesus and it would have immediately to the to the faithful Jews around him loaded the whole passage into their minds. That's very interesting. He quotes it. Let's, let's look at Psalm 22 now. It says, To the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? So Jesus quotes it here for two reasons. One, the passage is true. He is being, in a sense, forsaken, because he's taking our sin, he's being rejected so we can be accepted. Of course, he is brought back, he's received back, he overcomes. But there's a momentary, a temporary forsaking, and this is why I think there was darkness on the land for those three hours. It was showing that, that the, 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 the weight of sin, the shame of sin, I, I feel that the shame of sin must have been worse than the cross itself, which was horrific. Um, and so he says, why have you forsaken me? But also, he says it because he's trying to draw attention to this psalm. He quotes this verse on the cross. To my knowledge, it's the only verse he quotes on the cross. And so he wants us to look at this in light of the cross because it's about him. Verse two, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear and in the night season and I'm not silent, but you are holy. Enthroned in the praises of Israel, our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. Now there's repetition here because it's Hebrew poetry. This is a poetic thing. It's a psalm. But this, these verses, verses 2 through 5, establishes two things. One, he is not impugning God's holiness. You are holy. He goes, when I say you, why have you forsaken me? I'm not saying you're unholy or you're doing wrong. I'm saying, why have you forsaken me? But you're still holy. There's, there's a tension here that we see on the cross. We see fulfilled on the cross. So he's not impugning God's authority, but he's also then mentioning all the people God has delivered. And he's like, hey man, they all get delivered, but not me. I'm forsaken, but they're delivered. Boy, this sounds like the cross too, doesn't it? He's forsaken that we might be forgiven. He's set aside that we might be brought in. It fits Jesus entirely. But now this is a cumulative case. It's not as though that one verse, now that convinces me, you know. But rather, as we read through the psalm, you'll see there's nobody else that this better fits. And it just kind of adds together as this great picture of Christ. So verse 6, it says, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. This worm, this worm actually is a very interesting thing. The idea obviously being a worm is being lowly, being pathetic, being despised and reproached. He's rejected. Uh, the people are rejecting him. In fact, this is exactly what happened to Jesus. He's reproached and despised. He was rejected. This was, this happened to Christ on the cross uh, to get him to the cross. But this worm is really interesting. Just kind of a side note. Um, some of you have heard of it. It's called the Tolaoth worm or some people call it Tolaoth. This the the fancy term for it is coccus illicis, that's the fancy scientific term for it, or at least one of them. And this particular worm, it lives in Israel and it's important to the Israelis. It also lives in other places in the Middle East. Um, the Temple Institute just recently got a hold. That's in Israel. There's a there's a, a group called the Temple Institute. They want to rebuild the temple, and they want to get together all the priest garments and everything, animals, everything they need, to in order to actually have like old school, Old Testament Judaism happening. Well, it's very important to them that they just got a shipment of these worms in and they were able to do some demonstrations about how what they do. See, this worm is used to get the dye that they use on the priest's garments and even on the ram skins that covered the tabernacle. They use red dye. It has a very intense red dye that comes out of this, out of this worm. So they've been pretty happy to get that. Now, what happens is this worm will go up And it will crawl up on a tree. It looks almost like an insect. You wouldn't think of it as a worm, actually, if you saw it. And it crawls up on on a tree and attaches itself to a specific kind of oak tree. In fact, it's called the Kermes worm because that's the kind of oak that it attaches itself to. Well, then it gets stuck there. And it basically creates a shell around itself that hardens and glues itself to this tree. Then it produces its eggs. The eggs hatch and they are born. The eggs, over the course of about three days... They eat the parent and consume that parent's living body. Then finally, the parent dies. And the eggs, then they go out. I know this is a little gross, but it's a worm. It's okay. It's not a person. <laughs> and then the, uh, the, over these three days, then finally, the, uh, the, the red dye that's inside this, this worm oozes out onto the tree. There will actually be red stains on the trees from these worms, from this toloth. Then they go down. If you come back about three days later, you will see that the outer part of the worm has turned into a waxy, flaky, white substance. And they use it. They actually use this. They make shellac out of it so that they can put it on wood and they also use it as something to deal with people who have heart palpitations in medicine, this white stuff from the worm. So they use it for dye. They use it for several different things. This worm was very important back in the day. He says, I am a worm. Now, typically, the, worm to- the word toloth is not used. But more often than not, it's a different word for worm. But this time, it's toloth. Why? Because Jesus went up onto a tree and he died so that we, by feeding off of his sacrifice, might live. He left that tree stained. But three days later, three days later, he wasn't to be found. He was gone. It was empty. The tomb was empty and he had risen. And in fact, like the scripture says, Isaiah 18 Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, red, They will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And so like snow, it just turns white. I think this is really neat. Does that alone prove the Bible? Maybe not, but it sure helps, doesn't it? (laughs) It sure offers us something wonderful to think about and really interesting to enjoy, in my opinion. So he says, I'm a worm. I'm a toloth in this passage. Verse 7. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him, let God, deliver him since he delights in him. So they shoot the lip out and they shake their head. This is just a way of insulting someone. It's a way of reproaching them. Uh, We might not do it nowadays. Maybe I don't shoot my lip out. Maybe I stick my tongue out. Mm. You know, maybe I, I don't wag my head. Maybe I shake my fist. It's just the same type of thing. And so they are mocking and ridiculing. And this was actually quoted, verse 8, quoted by the enemies of Jesus. Let me read to you. Matthew 27, verses 39 through 44, says this, And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself, he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. So Jesus is, Jesus fits this. He's one who, if you look at verses 7 and 8, you realize this person who is, Psalm 22 is talking about, he's suffering. He's suffering. It appears God no longer approves of him, even though in the past, it was thought God did approve of him. Oh, if God delights in him, let him deliver him. This completely fits Jesus. And he's mocked and it was actually fulfilled. And we'll get into, some would say, well, those, they just wrote those passages to make it look like. We'll get to that later. It'll be a while later in our Evidence for the Bible series, but we will address that complaint. Verse 9, But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. It's interesting here. This person would have to be obviously a human, (laughs) you know, and there were some debates of the Messiah going to be a man or human or not. Well, this passage would seem to indicate it's a human. There's a birth. There's a mother. No human father is mentioned, which is just interesting. Not mentioned. That doesn't prove the virgin birth, but it's consistent with it. It's consistent with the virgin birth. So this fits the humanity of the Messiah, um, which is a Christian theology thing. It's very important to us. Verse 11, be not far from me for trouble is near. For there is none to help me or to help, excuse me. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. It was typical in this poetry to use animals as a metaphor for people. So, bulls of Bashan refers to powerful people, people who are in power, strong bulls of Bashan. There, there are um, political or military powers coming against him, and this happened to Jesus. He had powerful enemies all around, Jewish and Gentile authorities, courts, militia, they all came against Christ, multiple courts. He actually experienced three trials over the course of a night as he was on his way to be crucified. He dealt with the Jewish authorities. He dealt with the Herod and his sort of, you know, symbolic authority that he had in Israel. And then he dealt with Pilate and his Roman authority. And they all came against him in the end. Verse 14, he says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd or like a broken dry piece of pottery. And my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Let's pull this apart. It says specifically here that his bones were out of joint. (coughs) Now, doctors have detailed what happens when someone's on the cross, when a crucifixion happens. And I don't want to get into a bunch of detail, but I want to talk about the pertinent details here. And when the, the, the hands are nailed and the feet are nailed, and then they're put on the cross, they're stretched out like this, and then their body weight begins to pull them down. And as the body weight pulls them down, it begins eventually to tug and pull and dislocate the shoulders. It pulls the ribs and expands them so that the, your lungs stay in an open position on the cross so that they can't, uh, you can't exhale properly. So Jesus would not have been able to exhale properly, and this is why they would have had to push up on the nail on their feet in order to go, and let the rib cage close so that they could just exhale. And this is why they'd break the legs, because then they could no longer push up, so they could no longer exhale. That's why that would speed up the death on the cross. It would cause asphyxiation and they would die. Either they're either the breath or the heart pumping and giving out. This bones out of joint perfectly describes what happens on the cross. This word in the Hebrew also means spread out, the word out of joint. It also means spread out. My bones are all spread out. And this is I mean this is this this is the picture of the cross. then it goes on he says, "I'm poured out like water I mean in general physically emotionally, Jesus was poured out in those ways he was absolutely poured out um, in the in the garden we see him weeping great drops of blood. we now know that's actually a legitimate medical uh, condition. they see it most often in death row inmates before their execution this is I mean I just it's the, the crazy accuracy of this is just blows me away. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself because now I'm talking about the scientific accuracy of the Bible, but, but it's just factually true that this is, hey, that's reasonable what he experienced in the garden the night before. Then he was taken and he w- he didn't get any sleep that night. He was brought before a Jewish court. Then he was brought before Pilate. Then Pilate sent him over to Herod to be in court. They beat him in the Jewish court. They beat him in, with Herod and then they take him to the Romans and they beat him. And they beat him with the Roman flagellum and then they hit him in the back and they rip his back apart. I mean, just horrific beating, horrific beatings. They ripped out his beard. Uh, Terrible stuff. So he's poured out. Absolutely, he's poured out. But also, specifically, his blood is being poured out. I mean, he's been, if you think about this, Jesus has been dripping blood all over Jerusalem. I mean, there is blood in Herod's court that belong to Jesus. There's blood in the Jewish court that belong to Jesus. Now, there's blood in the Gentile court that belong to Jesus. I think it's because Jesus' blood is for everybody. But he's been poured out. He's been poured out. Finally, the nails and the crown and going to the cross, he continues to bleed. And finally, the spear in his side and blood and water literally pour out. Jesus actually showed evidence of having, having had a lot of blood loss. They call it hypovolemic shock or showing something along those lines. When he was on the uh, moving on his way to the cross, he seems to have fainted. They compelled Simon of Cyrene to help carry the cross because Jesus was weak and not, didn't have the strength to, it seems, didn't have the strength to just continue. He carried the cross part of the way and then probably together they, they carried it. Symptoms of hypovolemic shock include fainting, weakness, dryness, tongue clinging or sticking in mouth and that is what it describes right here. My bones are out of joint, my heart is like wax, it's melted within me, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, my tongue clings to my jaws. This is dehydration. When you get dehydrated, your tongue starts to stick to your mouth because you don't, your body's reserving that moisture and is not producing the saliva. When there's a lot of blood loss, your body then tries to pull all that liquid in and deal with it because there's not enough blood pressure to continue the circulation and have the heart pump at its efficiency, is the idea. The result is that he's brought to the dust of death. Now, this fits really beautifully and poetically with what Genesis talks about when God says, the day you eat of it, you will die. He, they eat of it and he says, all right, from dust you came and to dust you will return. So, dust is a synonym for death. So, he's brought him to the dust of death. So, this is somebody either being brought to the very edge of death or actually dying. One or the other. That certainly fits Jesus. <clears throat> and it speaks of a melted heart. My heart is melted. Um, most likely Jesus' actual death was caused by heart failure. That's the popular opinion of, uh, from physicians. that It was probably heart failure on the cross. And that fits this as well. And it starts to get a little weird how much everything fits. And how you look at David's life and you go, I can't think of something that actually fits this, David, that you went through. We don't have a story that relates to this. Verse 16, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now, dogs are not, so strong bulls are powerful people. Dogs are despicable people. Now, depending on the use of the word, it could actually mean friends if it's used a certain way. But in this case, it means despicable people. Maybe there's some irony there. Um, But they've surrounded him and there's a congregation who has enclosed him and they've what, pierced my hands and my feet. Let me come to that in a second. This was obviously, let's not miss this, this was a public execution. They've surrounded him, there's the, there's the powerful leaders coming against him, and then there's the, the mass crowds coming against him, and it's public. This is, again, narrowing down what this could be and who could experience it. And finally, it says, pierced my hands and my feet. I mean, everything in the psalm fits the crucifixion, but this really grabs us, doesn't it? Pierced my hands and my feet, what else could that be? I mean, piercing hands and feet. Now, let me just mention this. In Hebrew and in Greek, the word hand can reference anything in the upper forearm to the fingertip. So, it's a much larger area for hand. Now, we don't, in English, have a word representing here to here. So, it's translated as hand. But that means the nails were probably actually here. And that's not a, that's not a violation of the term hand here. That's not a contradiction or anything. That's what the word means. We just don't have an English parallel for that. Now, when was this written? You guys remember Psalm 22? 10th century, a thousand years before Christ. Do you know this? Crucifixion had not been invented when the psalm was written. Crucifixion had not been invented until the 4th century by the Persians. We heard about them a few weeks ago. The Persians invented crucifixion, but they didn't perfect it. The Romans later, they took it and tweaked it and changed it here and there to make it a gruesome, long, slow, painful, terrifying process because they wanted to crucify victims publicly to say, don't mess with Rome. Now, if you're a Roman citizen, it was illegal to crucify you. I mean, they could execute you, but not crucify. So, this is why um, uh, Jesus was able to be crucified. He was not a Roman citizen. He was a Jew, but not a Roman. Paul was a Roman citizen. They couldn't have crucified him. (coughs) So, this... This is where it starts to get attacked and let me, let me respond to an attack because one of my goals and I love doing this, I like to address the critics, I like to take the strongest accusations they'll come, they'll come against us with and then just deal with them ahead of time, <laughs> right here in the, in, the, in the moment. So here's the critical attack and it comes here, the, the attacks against the prophecies of Jesus typically come from Jewish anti-missionaries, that's a real term. There's a group of uh, Jews called Jews for Jesus and they go out and wonderful people and they go out and they spread the truth of Christ that Jesus is the Messiah and they spread it to the Jewish people. In response to this, there's been some, some traditional Jews who rose a, Rizza, risen up, risen, risen, raisin, raisin, I think it is. Uh, they, they've come up and they've decided we're going to combat these Jewish missionaries because they're successful. They show them Psalm, Isaiah 53, they show them Psalm 22 and then Jews are like, he's the Messiah. So they've come against it. One of the leaders of this group is a guy named Rabbi Tovia Singer. So I'm trying to take their attacks. They have spent a lot of time and energy attacking the Messianic prophecy, whereas most atheists haven't. So here I'm not talking about atheists. I'll talk about Jewish anti-missionaries because they're the ones that seem to have the strongest accusations against these. So let me tell you what they say. Tovia Singer, he says that King James Version translators invented the word pierced right there. It doesn't say they pierced his hands and feet. It really says, like a lion, they are at my hands and my feet. And that the word's supposed to mean lion. Let me quote to you what he says. Rabbi Tovia Singer, he says, Needless to say, the phrase they pierced my hands and my feet is a Christian contrivance, or they made it up, that appears nowhere in the Jewish scriptures. Bear in mind, this stunning mistranslation of the 22nd Psalm did not occur because Christian translators were unaware of the correct meaning of this Hebrew word. Clearly, this was not the case. Let me translate. Fraud. That the translators of the the King James Version lied. They just straight up lied in order to make the Psalm look like it was about Jesus. Now, never mind that everything else in the Psalm is already very clearly applicable to Jesus. But, so if we, if we lost this word pierce, I mean, what would that mean? Well, let's look at it. Um, Let's suppose that, that he's right. That it's meant, that it should be translated like a lion they are at my hands and my feet. This would mean extreme bodily violence is done to the hands and feet as though it were bit by a lion. This also fits crucifixion. As usual, it's a mountain out of a molehill. Uh, In fact, highly respected Jewish Rabbi Rashi, if you were Jewish, you'd be like, yes, he is very highly respected, you know, He's his uh, in fact, the Talmud is printed now with his commentary in it the the Jewish Talmud they just print it with his commentary he's very well respected. He describes this verse and like his understanding his commentary is that it's as though the hands and feet were crushed in a lion's mouth now being having a you know eight inch iron spike driven through your wrist and your feet seems to fit that description to me, so we're still. <laughs> Even if it is, we're still able to apply this to Jesus very, very reasonably. But the question is, is it? Is pierced a bad translation? Why is it, why is it in my Bible? I got New King James Version. Why would it be in there if it's such a bad translation? Well, here's what Rabbi, Rabbi Tovia Singer is either unaware of or maybe forgetting conveniently (laughs) at the moment. The Septuagint, we talked about this before. This is the oldest Jewish translation of the Old Testament. It's a Jewish translation. It's not Christian. It's before Jesus showed up. And it translates this into a Greek word, Arikson, which means pierced. The oldest Jewish translation translates it as pierced. The oldest Jewish manuscript that's still in Hebrew is a Dead Sea Scrolls copy of this passage that goes back to the time before Christ. And it translates it as a word Ka'aru, which means to dig out or to bore through. My hands and feet are to dug out or bored through. So we pierced is a, another a good way to translate that. There's about a dozen medieval manuscripts that also agree with this. And the term like a lion is actually clumsy because my hands and feet are like a lion. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't quite fit. You have to kind of play with it and try to make it. They're at my hands and feet like a, like a lion. It doesn't really. You're, you're sort of adding things and mixing things up there. It's a little clumsy. So it, it is pierced. It is pierced. But even if it wasn't, it would, still, it would still line up with crucifixion. I think that's neat. I like to deal with the critics' biggest attacks because when you first hear the attack, it's, it's like intimidating. You're like, whoa, da- I don't know about all that. You know, I just read the book and it said, you know. And so it's fun to, to just watch the critics break their knuckles on the Bible. <laughs> that's my favorite thing. Verse 17, let's move on. He says, I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. There's two things here. One is the idea of counting bones. This fits crucifixion. If, uh, if Jesus had been fully clothed, you would not, he would not be able to count his bones. But if he had had his clothes taken off, which he was naked or mostly naked on the cross, um, and then being stretched out and pulled up and ribs sticking out, you can count all your bones. This again fits the crucifixion entirely and doesn't fit any particular moment of David's life that we can think of. Also, They stare. That's the second thing. They stare. This means, again, it's in public. It is in public. He's being killed in this special fashion in public, and it's with the approval of the witnesses. They're just consenting. They're just staring and oogling at him. Add all this up. It's just amazing. Verse 18, in case your brain hasn't exploded enough, prepare for another round. Verse 18 says, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots this is actually two different prophecies. Because if you were casting lots as gambling, like rolling dice, so lots would be just like dice, rolling dice. So if you were dividing the garments, that's like, hey, you take some, I'll take some, you take some. But you're casting lots. Well, now we're gambling for them. Which is it? Are we dividing? Or are we gambling? Well, this is very specifically, even though it was a thousand years later, it was fulfilled. Let me read it to you in John 19, verse 23 and 24. Then the soldiers when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart. That would be divided by garments. And also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam woven from the top in one piece. It was a nice piece of clothing. Someone probably, someone who made it for him probably made the clothing because they cared for Jesus and maybe appreciated him for healing or something. And so they say, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. That the scripture might be fulfilled. And then it quotes from this psalm. They, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Wow. Literally fulfilled. And every, the whole psalm, it just keeps, it just keeps connecting with Jesus's crucifixion. Verse 19, let's continue. And again, uh, they would say, "Oh, oh, they just, they just, the New Testament writers just added that in there. Now, there's no proof of that. There's no proof of that. The only reason to say that is because you just don't like it. <laughs> he still like it, but we'll come to that later as we get there in our Evidence for the Bible series. Verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. So it's a plea for deliverance and now it shifts. Before it was, why have you forsaken me? But you're holy. I trust you and this is what's happening to me and now it shifts. Help. Help. Deliver me from this. Deliver me from this. Then at the end of verse 21, it is answered. You have answered me. And with those four words, everything in the psalm changes. And the whole psalm can be split in half right there. Because as we move on, it's no longer about the death. It's about something else. There is a temporary forsaking of the person in Psalm 22. But there is an ultimate deliverance. Boy, doesn't that sound like Jesus? A temporary forsaking, but an ultimate deliverance. Delivered from death or the brink of death. Either one would be applicable here. He's brought to the dust of death. Do you know that Jesus always spoke of his resurrection when he talked about his death? He'd always say, he'd say, I'm going to die. But then three days later, I'll rise. And of course, the disciples, they just heard this. Wah, 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 because they were not really able to take it in at the time, you know, it seems. But sure enough, you have answered me. So this would be obviously talking here about the resurrection of Christ. That's how we would, we would parallel it to, to that moment. Verse 22. The results now of this deliverance. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. So I will be alive, I will be standing with them, and I will declare these truths. Um, This fits Jesus. Verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him, and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. That section is all about the Jews. Notice the people he's saying praise him. They're all Jewish, right? The descendants of Jacob, the offspring of Israel. He's saying, I want you to praise him. But then it's going to shift. And now it's going to include the Gentiles. It'll include the Jewish, it'll include the poor, it'll include the rich, and it'll include the Gentiles. Verse 26. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. Eternal life. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to you, to the Lord. And all the families of the nations, nations, obviously Gentiles, shall worship before you for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Yes, this psalm prophecies Now it's moving forward, right? This is a future tense. They shall. This is a future thing. Now we know it's definitely speaking of prophecy. Because of this event, it's going to bring in not only the praises of Israel, but it's going to bring the Gentile nations into relationship with God. What? Yes. this This is Jesus. I mean, it completely fits. Gentiles coming to God. This actually has happened. We could call this fulfilled. I mean, who else did this? What other Jewish person has brought the Gentiles into relationship with God? Massive groups of nations around the world coming to God because of this death and deliverance that Psalm 22 speaks of. I mean, if it's not about Jesus, it's not about anybody. James E. Smith put it this way. He says, no Old Testament person could have imagined that his personal deliverance from death could be the occasion for the world's conversion. But that's what Psalm Psalm 22 talks about. Verse 29, it says, all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust, that's death, shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. After death, there is hope. And after death, there's hope because of what happened here, because of this moment right here, because of what Psalm 22 speaks of. Jesus fits this. Verse 30, a posterity shall serve him it will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. This. What's the this? Well, it's the thing the psalm keeps talking about. It's this event. All my bones, and then he delivers me and then the whole world's going to get converted. What? Yes, this is, I mean, Jesus literally has fulfilled this. You can prove that he fulfilled this. Um, I think it's absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. And this is going to be um, our central message as we move forward, uh, we've seen uh, Genesis 5 tonight, we've looked at that, It's too neat to ignore in my opinion, and then we looked at Psalm 22, which it fits like a glove, it doesn't fit any known event of David's life, it, it says here, we'll recount this event to generations to come, well, we don't even know what event this is in David's life, if it's about him, and so it's unfulfilled, if it's a failed prophecy, if it's about David, but if it's about Jesus, it's a fulfilled prophecy. And then we'll continue. Uh, next week, we'll probably look at Isaiah 52 and 53 and we'll keep going through some other messianic prophecies. And um, uh, let me pray and then I'll take any questions you guys have. Uh, Father, we thank you for this time. It's so exciting to go through it. We pray that it would sink into our hearts, but also that we would be able to take these truths and share them with others and show them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that he was forsaken, that we could be forgiven, that he was taken into to judgment, that we could be brought into to eternal life, that he was delivered, that he rose again from the dead. We pray, Lord, that we could be those who carry boldly the message of the gospel of Jesus to a world that needs it so bad, that we would see this continue to be fulfilled as more nations come to you, as more people turn and have their hope in God, that even if they go to the dust, they know that they'll be saved eternally. In Jesus' name, amen.